1: We've been charting our way through Revelation. Today, we're back in chapter 20, looking at verses 1 through 10 and the release of Satan after the millennium reign. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, this is Abounding Grace. Hi there, and welcome to our program. We're back in Revelation chapter 20, looking at the release of Satan after the thousand year reign of Christ. And we're exploring together just what this actually means. Is it a literal thousand years? Well, we've explored that, and now we're looking at this release of Satan. Join us today. Here's Pastor Gary with this edition of Abounding Grace.
0: Now Satan has no ability to keep the nations from hearing and receiving the gospel. And as a result, there are millions upon millions of Christians and professed Christians in virtually every nation upon the face of the earth. You ask, well, how can this thousand-year period begin with the binding of Satan 2,000 years ago? And remember, I said the numbers in the book of Revelation are all symbolic like everything else in Revelation. And that when the Bible uses the number 1,000, more often than not, it is figurative. For instance, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That does not mean that God doesn't own the cattle on a thousand and first hill. It simply means that God owns all of the cattle on all of the hills. So the word thousand is not to be interpreted literally in the Bible. It is now about 2,000 years long, and who knows how many more years it will be before the second coming of Christ. So the term 1,000 simply signifies a long and complete period of time. Then we looked at verses 4 through 6 and saw the reign of the saints, which means if someone is to get in on the blessings of this 1,000 year reign, He has to experience the first resurrection, and the first resurrection will save you from the second death. We did a study of what John had to say about the two different kinds of death and two different kinds of resurrection, and we saw in John 5 that John talks about a spiritual resurrection that takes place when you are called out of darkness into light, or the new birth, and that saves you from the first death. Of course, that first death was a spiritual death. The Bible tells us that, Adam sa- that God said to Adam, In the day you eat of the fruit, you shall die. But Adam went on to live for 900 years. So that day he did not die spiritually. He did die spiritually. So the first resurrection saves you from the first death or spiritual resurrection from spiritual death. The second resurrection, which is the resurrection of the body at the second coming of Christ, saves you from the effects of physical death and from eternal death beyond the grave. And then we saw that the saints, during this thousand-year period, are to reign with Christ. We saw in Ephesians 2 and in various places in the book of Revelation a theme that the saints reign with Christ when He began to reign 2,000 years ago. And of course, He began to reign 2,000 years ago, and we, as it were, sit on His lap, and we reign in Him and with Him. We sit on thrones and we are given the ability to judge. That is synonymous with having the keys of the kingdom where we are able to administer the word of God and render judgment based upon that word. And now we come to verses 7 through 10. And this is the only place in the Bible that speaks of the release of Satan. So let me read verses 7 through 10 to you again of Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Whatever the thousand years are, whenever the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now. As I said, this is the only place that speaks of the release of Satan. So we've got to be pretty careful on how we interpret it. The point is that toward the end of the thousand year period, which again is figurative, that began with the first coming of Christ and goes until the second coming of Christ, Satan will be released from being bound, and he will be released in some measure for a short period of time. Throughout all the rest of this millennial period, Satan is bound. But there will be a short period of time near the end when for some purpose in God's holy plan, Satan will be released. Now, I want to give you a better interpretation of one of the words there in verse 7. You see where it says, and when the thousand years are completed. The Greek word there for when specifies a time limit. So it should literally and more accurately be translated whenever. Because we do not know when this is going to take place. God has not told us the specific length of this period of time. Of course, if it was literally a thousand years, you could calculate it, and then it would be the word when there, because if it meant literally a thousand years, then when Satan is released at the end, there would be time specifications, but there is none. We don't know how long this period is from the first coming of Christ to the second coming. But whenever it comes to an end, Satan will be released in some measure for a short period of time. In verse 3 it says, And here he threw him in the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he, that is Satan, must be released for a short time. Now, it is that word must, that is, the must of divine sovereignty. He must be released because it's part of God's plan. And I want you to notice that Satan is released. He doesn't break loose. It doesn't say that toward the end of the millennium, Satan is going to break loose and start causing great harm. No, he will be released, and he must be released. Because for some reason or another, his release from binding is going to serve God's eternal plan for his people. His release in no way overthrows or defeats Christ's kingdom, It is a part of God's plan for bringing on the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. It has all the earmarks of a taunting, that he must be released so that God can taunt him one last time. So the word must, like Jesus said, if you remember, he must go to Jerusalem. Why? Because of God's sovereignty. He had planned for the Savior to die in Jerusalem, and Satan must be released, and that is the must of God's sovereignty, because God has a plan for His release before the end of time. Now notice the nature of this release in verses 8 through 9. And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plains of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. And the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now, notice that God releases Satan for a short time to do three things according to these two verses. To deceive the nations concerning Christ and his kingdom to gather the wicked nations for war against Christ's kingdom, and to surround God's people in a last-ditch effort at intimidation and destruction. So let's look at those three things. First of all, God releases Satan so that Satan can deceive the nations concerning Christ and his kingdom. Remember, he is bound... And he can't keep the gospel from going to the nations, converting people within the nations, and converting the nations themselves. But toward the end, he is going to be released, and he will be able to deceive the nations concerning Christ and Christ's kingdom. And that will bring widespread rebellion on earth against the kingdom of Christ in Christian nations and churches and families. Notice there are two phrases here that apply to the same thing. Verse 8, and I will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So these nations are everywhere, all over the planet. And all these nations together are called Gog and Magog. Now who is Gog and Magog? the book of Revelation, as we have seen, often calls the enemies of the New Testament church the same names of the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. For instance, if you remember, in Revelation 11 and Revelation 17, we read about the woman who was clothed in purple and scarlet, And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So Gog and Magog were powerful enemies of Israel in the Old Testament, just like Babylon. And now these two words are used to describe the rebellion of nations after the release of Satan. Now, it's some nations, we don't know what nations, from various parts of the world. Now, these names, Gog and Magog, are used from Ezekiel 38 and 39 by the premillennialists that show all kinds of their erroneous ideas about the end times. But there's always a problem with their exposition. Ezekiel 38 and 39 do not talk about Gog and Magog as overrunning Israel, but the problem with premillennialism, did I say not, but with the overrunning of Israel? But the problem with premillennialism is that in those two chapters, Gog and Magog overrun Israel before the birth of the Messiah. And the dispensationalist teachers always have a literal Gog and Magog doing something toward the end of the world. Whereas in chapters 38 and 39, they overrun Israel before Christ is born. But in our text... Gog and Magog represent all of the rebellious nations from various parts of the world, and they are involved in an attempted overthrow of the church and Christ's kingdom toward the end of the millennium. Now, what do we know from Scripture that's already taken place by then? If the release of Satan comes right after this period is complete, just before the second coming of Christ... And what we see, that is just before the second coming. And Satan is now released to gather some nations from all over the earth that are called Gog and Magog because they are the enemies of the church. What has already taken place? The nations of the world have been converted. The world has been Christianized. The great promises of Galatians 3 and Genesis 12 and 15 are fulfilled and the gospel spreads and the blessings of gospel of God are received by the various nations of the world and the families and nations of the world are worshiping the triune God. So before the release of Satan, there will have been hundreds and hundreds who know how many hundreds of years of Christianity globally dominating life on this planet. Not all nations, numerically speaking, but generally speaking, all nations throughout the world receive Christ. There are a few who don't, and it is these nations that John is talking about here. Long after the gospel prosperity of the church, but before the second coming, Satan is released to try and deceive these nations. In Ezekiel, Gog and Magog are not two places or two different locations. Gog is the place, and Magog in Greek means the prince of the people. So Gog was the place, and Magog was the ruler that would overrun Israel before the birth of Christ. Now these names are used as the names of the enemies of Christ and the rebels that come from the four corners of the earth. So the first thing Satan was released to do was to deceive the nations concerning Christ and his kingdom. The world has been converted, Because this is right before the second coming, but not in its entirety. So there are still rebels out there in pockets of resistance. And not just pockets of resistance. But I'm sure you know what some so-called Christians do today if they want to survive, and they want to make lots of money, and they want to be popular, and they want acceptance. They go along to get along. They go with the flow, so that you have in, a, in Christian churches people who play at being Christian, but are not, because they are compromising with the world. Though the same is going to be true when the whole world becomes Christianized, you are going to see people who realize, except in reverse, that in this Christian world and Christian society, and Christian economy, you better at least fake being a Christian. You better go long to get along. You better go with the flow when the flow is Christian, but you're really not a Christian in your heart. Now that's where some of these rebels will come from, people who feigned Christianity because the vast majority of the world was Christian. Satan is going to come And he will deceive them and cause them to show what they really are. And he will gather these wicked nations and people for war against Christ's kingdom. And notice it says, the war. That is, this is a war that is total. The remaining unregenerate nations of the world, whether they are professing believers or fake Christians, they will unite in their now avowed and open hatred against God and his moral social order, and they will no longer hide behind their mask of Christianity. We will find in that day that a large number, not a majority, but a significant minority of those people during the latter day glory of the church, whom everyone thought were Christians, were not. So Satan deceives and gathers them for war. Now there's a parable that sort of explains this. It actually doesn't talk about the release of Satan, but I believe it will help us understand why, towards the end, Satan can gather such a group of people. And that is the parable of the wheat and tares. So turn with me, if you will, to the 13th chapter of Matthew and you'll see another expl- explanation or another side of the story of how Satan, when he is released at the end of the world to deceive the nations, succeeds in getting so many people to follow him. Now I'm going to start in verse 24 and read verses 24 through 30 and then verses 36 through 43. So beginning in verse 24 of Matthew 13. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore again, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up and gather the wheat into my barn. And now 36 through 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. And as for good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil." And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father who has has He who has ears, uh, let him hear. So, here you have basically a philosophy of history. It says that in the world, Christ has sown seed, and the seed is the sons of the kingdom. It is a wheat field, so to speak. Now, even though someone would come and sneak in at night and plant weed seeds, it's not a pasture of weeds with a significant number of weeds planted in that wheat field. So the servants come and ask, should we pluck up the tares? The farmer said no. Because in their immaturity, these weeds and the immature wheat look alike. And it's very difficult for anyone except the trained eye to distinguish the wheat from the tares in their immaturity. So wait until they both reach maturity, and then when the wheat looks like wheat and the tares look like tares, then it is clear which is which, and Christ will come and root out all of the tares from his wheat field. Now notice the philosophy of history. Both the wheat and tares come to maturity in history. That is, the longer history proceeds, the more Christians are going to look like Christians, and the more wheat is going to look like wheat, and the more tares are going to look like tares. So as history goes on, as Bonson and Van Til and others would say, both the wheat and the tares will come to epistemological self-consciousness. And what I mean is, as history goes on, God is going to cause the sons of the kingdom to mature so that they look like the sons of the kingdom and are not compromised and are much less influenced by the culture.